Hey friends, welcome back. How you doing? You know, in one of my earlier podcasts, I uh, talked about one of my favorite photographers who uh, is the great writer, Eudora Welty, born in 1909 in Jackson, Mississippi. I kind of mentioned in passing uh, that my two favorite male photographers were like Eudora Welty, not primarily photographers. Uh, and one is Milt Hinton, who was born in Vicksburg, Mississippi in 1910. And uh, Marty Stewart, who was born in Philadelphia, Mississippi in 1958. I didn't uh, know, I mean, I guess I knew, but I didn't recognize a Mississippi connection there. The connection I was looking at was that they were not primarily photographers or didn't consider themselves professionals even at a certain level. Marty Stewart, I've talked about on the podcast before. He's an interesting guy. He's become a kind of elder statesman of traditional country music, and he's deep in it. He, he, he deserves that position, I would say. As a child growing up in Mississippi, he... Uh, heard Flat and Scruggs playing the Beverly Hillbillies theme song on the television show. Lester Flat and Earl Scruggs had a band called the Foggy Mountain Boys. They started out with Bill Monroe, who was the father of bluegrass music. He sort of invented or at least popularized the genre. He credits his Uncle Penn as really being the inventor of it. Um, and he was a famous national touring act. Um, but kind of early in that, Lester Flatt and Earl Scruggs, Lester Flatt on guitar and Earl Scruggs on the banjo, a great banjo player, totally defined the way the banjo was played as an instrument in the 20th century, um, went out on their own. And then in the early 60s, they became sort of, uh, I don't know, surprise celebrities when they recorded the theme song to the Beverly Hillbillies. It became a popular television show. And suddenly a young audience was interested in that kind of bluegrass music. They started playing, uh, you know, college campuses and, and music festivals, not just bluegrass festivals, and they became really sort of well-known. And in 1972, when Marty was 13 years old or something like that, uh, he was able to audition for them, and they picked him up as a mandolin player. He replaced a lot of other great mandolin players in their band, but in some ways he was occupying the seat of the great Bill Monroe. Uh, and, and uh, you know, he was a kid, so he he lived with Lester Flatt and, and sort of went where he went, you know, became friends with his friends. And, and he really just uh, not only became acquainted with all of the great country musicians, um, but also, you know, rock and roll musicians, because, again... Uh, because of their sort of celebrity from the television show, uh, which they were on, by the way, too, you know, not just playing the theme song. Uh, they sort of like played, uh, you know, some venues that mixed with rock and roll in a really uh, kind of cool and interesting way. Marty's development of a as a photographer is super interesting, too. He talks about how his mother was a great photographer, and she was his real inspiration. She had a gift for catching intimate moments with the kids and stuff. People would be playing and were doing something, and she'd grab her camera and get an image of it. And uh, he talks about how 
He went to New York for the first time in the late 70s with Flat and Scruggs. And, you know, they were getting ready for their show. And he was wandering around Greenwich Village. You know, he was interested in the folk scene there and what had been going on. He walked into a bookstore and he saw this great image of Ella Fitzgerald shooting dice in the alley behind a recording studio with the guys. And he just thought that was really really great, uh, you know, to see her doing this sort of, I don't know, ordinary thing. He may not have known the story, but she was arrested for shooting dice with some of the guys in the band in 1955. And the person who took that photograph certainly knew that history because he had certainly unparalleled access to the titans of jazz. And that man was Milt Hinton, the great double bassist, the judge, the dean of American bass players, who, as I mentioned, was born in uh, in Mississippi around the time that Eudora Welty was. Fortunately for the young Milt Hinton, he was able to get out of Mississippi. He, uh, you know, has described at various times the extreme poverty he grew up in and uh, has a story about seeing a lynching as a child living uh, under the shadow of that kind of terrorism. But he moved to, uh, to Chicago when he was young and ended up getting in some great uh, school education, music education programs. Um, like a lot of the great jazz musicians of his time, the public schools were an amazing resource of talented teachers. And he eventually, by the early 30s, after playing with a lot of the um, a lot of the New Orleans people who had ended up in Chicago and meeting Louis Armstrong, who he'd eventually play for, but he came to be in Cab Calloway's band. Uh, in the mid-30s, and he stayed with Cab for 15 years or so and moved to New York and became a fixture in the studio where he played with everybody. I mean, he came into contact with everybody, and he was just such a a true gentleman and prince of a guy that he, uh, you know, was always around. He married his wife, Mona, in 1936, uh, the year that he went to work for Cab Calloway, and she was on the road with him, and so she sort of was equally uh, family <laughs> to a lot of these people. They really were, um, you know, an important couple in, in the in the jazz scene. And Milt, uh, you know, started taking pictures. The year before he married his wife, Mona, he uh, was given a camera, 35-millimeter camera, as a birthday present, started taking pictures. He started just taking them with him when he was on the road or, you know, in the recording studio or or whatever. And he he recognized that his position in jazz uh, as somebody who was in uh, was a a popular sideman to people uh, had access to those people in a way that nobody else did. And he just started taking candid pictures of all of these amazing people. And he really got together a body of work that just couldn't have been approached by a professional photographer. He was just there when stuff was happening. And his camera was so ever-present that 
people let down their guard and, and let it let themselves be photographed in ways that that they wouldn't have let a stranger photograph them. One of the things I think that's great about it, uh, about his work, is that, um, you know, there are some reminders of what it is to travel in the South and to be a, a jazz musician. Uh, he has one of his collections, a, a book called On the Road, um, that's mostly photographs of Cal Cab Calloway. And there's a picture where the band, the men and women in the band, are standing in front of a hotel and they're all pointing up to a sign that says Coloreds Only. And, uh, you know, he's reminding us of what it was for Southerners to have to go back to the South to make a living, to find access to the, to the large black audiences that, that, they, that they needed to reach. Um, but mostly what's striking about his pictures is that everybody looks fabulous all the time. They're all wearing these beautiful suits. Ella Fitzgerald's wearing these beautiful dresses, pearls. And he presents these people with a, just a, a, you know, a tremendous amount of dignity. He shows that they are a people that can turn indignity into joy and maintain dignity while doing it, which I think is maybe a great definition of jazz itself. Um, and anyway, Marty Stewart... He walks into this bookstore and he sees these photographs and he's captivated by them and he sees that they're taken by Milt Hinton and he recognizes at that moment as a teenager that he has access to people in the way that Milt did and he recognizes also that the country people that he's around have their own set of tough negotiations between the expectations of of uh, audiences and record companies and their own set of stereotypes to overcome and that he can, like Milt, show the quiet dignity of these artists. And I really love that story. I was listening to um, an interview with Marty that came out a couple of days ago with the Musicians Hall of Fame and he told that story and I'd never heard him tell it before. I was interested in his photography, but I'd never seen him draw that direct line to his fellow Mississippian Milt Hinton and say explicitly that he was just trying to do what Milt Hinton was doing. And I think that's beautiful because, again, I've always connected the work of the two of them and I've taught them together often. So uh, Marty wrote a letter to his mom <laughs> right then and said, Hey, could you send me a camera? Shortly after that, um, just a few months later, really, uh, Lester died at 64 years old and ended the Foggy Mountain Boys, and uh, Marty was out of a job, and he just started carrying his camera around with him, and he was suddenly out of work, uh, and despite knowing a lot of people, uh, the bluegrass scene was not exactly on fire at the time. And he arranged a meeting with Johnny Cash. I mentioned in the podcast where I talked about him that he took that last great image of Johnny Cash. Uh, it was four days before he died. He was Cash's next-door neighbor, though he was only in his band from 1979 to 1986. Um, he still was a, his on-call guitar player for recording work, and 
And Marty was actually with Johnny Cash when he did the American recordings sessions that um, that gave him all the late success that made him um, a star again to a lot of young people, people of my generation and younger. My students know and love Johnny Cash. He also took uh, the last known photograph of that uh, titan of bluegrass I talked about, Bill Monroe, the father of bluegrass. It's called The Last Winter, and it shows him sitting in his suit wearing a Stetson hat, playing his mandolin at the end of a at the end of a barn. There's another photo that Marty took of uh, of Bill Monroe that's really great. That's before that. Uh, it, it's it's the year before that. Monroe is standing in front of his Cadillac limousine that's pulled over under a shed behind his chicken pen. Uh, the story was they tried to. They were going to start it and pull it in front of his log cabin, and the contrast between the log cabin and the Cadillac would be interesting. But it was just as interesting, the contrast that they constructed. So Bill said, well, then they couldn't get the car started. So he said, well, then, Marty, let me show you my chickens. And he walked out into the pen, took out his mandolin. Again, he's wearing a white suit. He's fabulous. He looks like he's about to walk on stage takes out his mandolin and he plays chicken reel to the chickens and they start dancing around and Marty's got this great shot of these chickens moving around. Bill Monroe, chicken scratching out the chicken reel and that Cadillac limousine with its three doors on a side in the background there. It's a really a great shot. Again, like like the pictures of... Uh, of uh, the jazz musicians that Milt Hinton is is uh is taking marty's interested in showing the quiet dignity of the people that are sometimes the subject of stereotyping i mean let's face it people in appalachia um, are not exactly seen as uh as the giants of american culture that some of them were and are Another one of his great photos is of George Jones. Uh, George Jones was a famous country singer who was uh, called No Show Jones because he'd get drunk and not show up. The story was that everyone wanted to get drunk with George Jones, so he'd go in town and get drunk, and all of those guys would go home and sleep it off, and George Jones would go to the next town and you know rinse and repeat, so to speak. So he was... Somebody who was not keeping it together in life exactly. And in fact, he didn't get sober until 1999. And he had some, you know, 15 years or so of life and productivity left after that. But he had a troubled career. But uh, a couple of years before that, Marty took a picture of him. He's standing in his dressing room. And I think the story is he's looking over a set list or something. But he looks like he's praying. There's a wall that comes almost down the center of the of the image. It's off, you know, to the offset to the right of the image a little bit. And he's got his hand on, on the wall. And then he's holding, I guess his set list, but it looks like he's holding a Bible. It looks like he's in prayer. And, and again, George Jones is somebody who presented himself with dignity. He's wearing glasses. He has his gray hair combed back. He's wearing a suit. He looks like a Baptist minister more than he looks like a, uh, country music star, you know, who was, who was famously, um, out of control. Um, but he sees that, uh, you know, moment of quiet 
in somebody who wasn't experiencing a lot of peace or quiet in their life at the time. And Marty seems to see the future redemption of George Jones because he knows that somebody with that kind of a gift must have the spirit in him to come through that kind of experience. The, the most famous George Jones story that most people know is that he was... Um, his wife hid the keys to all the cars from him so that he wouldn't leave and drink. And he, um, you know, drove his lawnmower down the middle of the road. The story they put out was that he was going to the liquor store. But um, as Steve Earle, the great singer-songwriter who was, had his own problems in life, likes to point out, liquor stores aren't open at 4 o'clock in the morning. Steve Earle wants to point out that George was going to his cocaine dealer um and anyway marty seems to seems to see the redemption of george george jones baked into that cake he sees that in that moment um of reflection before he walks out on stage he's like okay george you've actually got this marty often talks about the Saturday night, Sunday morning dialectic in country music and his images, I think, capture both of those things at the same time. He's got a similar image of Loretta Lynn where her head's bowed that's equally powerful. Speaking of Steve Earle, I don't know uh, what people know about Steve Earle. He was uh, uh, involved in a group of singer-songwriters from Texas that were really famous and really well known and he struggled for a long time in Nashville and in 1986 um, around the time that Marty Stewart started to become a country star on his own Steve had a breakthrough album uh, called Guitar Town and yes guitar is how we pronounce that and uh, he became you know kind of famous for a moment he kind of shook things up in Nashville a little bit and he kind of moved away from country more towards rock, and then he had his own demons to deal with. He disappeared on what he called a vacation in the ghetto for three years, where he, uh, you know, became a crack addict in South Nashville, and he really, uh, you know, he really just sort of fell off the edge of the earth. And in 94, he got arrested for weapons and heroin possession, and he... Uh, you know, was in his own struggle to come back. And Marty recorded with him. Steve made a great record right after he came out of prison called Train a Coming. And Marty was involved in it. And Marty got him involved in some things um, when he, Steve Earl was kind of toxic in Nashville and people didn't want to do anything with him. And Marty gave him that opportunity. And there's a great photo he's taken of him uh, where... He's sitting in the studio. There's a expensive Newman microphone hanging down in front of him, and he's kind of got his face covered. He's lighting a cigarette, and you can't see the match or lighter or whatever it is, but you can see the image shining on his face, and he looks horrible. He's got his stringy hair. He's overweight. He's he's He looks gaunt and overweight at the same time. He's got hollow eyes, and uh, it's another one of those moments where Marty seems to see the redemption of Steve Earle before Steve Earle sees it. He he looks like he's got his body back from the great state of Tennessee, but he hasn't got his soul back from the devil yet. He'd been knowing the devil too long for them to part so quickly. 
And uh, I have to say that since then, Steve has been functional, highly functional. He's done his best work. He's written plays, poems, uh, novels, and uh, written some of the best songs of his life and persevered through a lot of hard times that would have derailed him before. And again, I think that that dignity and redemption are themes in Marty's work that I think are, are powerful. And uh, again, I think that like Milt, just having a camera around and having access to people make him a different type of photographer than other people who are professionals. And I think he's wonderful. I think you should check him out. Um, I hope I haven't thrown a string of names at you. I've tried to explain who these people are, and I hope that if you know who they are, you'll uh, you'll maybe get something new from it. But I would definitely encourage you to look into the photographs uh, that Milt Hinton and um, Marty Stewart have taken because I think they're absolutely wonderful, and I think they really can give you some insight into uh, the musical uh, worlds that they occupied. Hey, friends, thanks for listening. Um, I'll see you again next week, okay? Be nice to each other. Take care of yourselves. And uh, I'll see you soon.